satire sits bleary-eyed and unshaven in a cheap motel room surrounded by empty vodka bottles quietly sobbing as it watches the news. That recent tweet from private eye joke writer Tom Jameson suggests the paradox of the current political moment. On both sides of the Atlantic, politics has never been funnier and it has also never been less funny. What is the role of humour in such strange times? Welcome to Think Aloud, where you'll hear from the people shaping arts and culture today. I'm Harriet Fitchlistle and together we'll consider new ideas and approach old ones from new angles to hopefully, no, I can say definitely, cast some light on the most exciting things happening right now in the arts. Now, as someone who spends or wastes, delete as you see fit, a lot of their time on Twitter, I found that I'm often using Twitter as a jumping off point for the news that I choose to read. Twitter is, by nature of the character limit, very short and succinct. So in my view, it prioritizes two things, rousing sincere statements, and the other thing is jokes. My consumption of the news at the moment often begins with the joke on Twitter and works back from there, trying to work out, first of all, what they're talking about, and second of all, why it's funny. Now, whether you're on Twitter or not, I don't think I'm alone in that feeling that we're currently seeing the news through a constant dark comic filter. Britain has kind of constructed this rickety ladder over a cliff precipice, constructing a Brexit deal that is laden with more servings of bitter irony than even Alanis Morissette could handle. America, in the meantime, is being ruled by a man who is so incredibly easy to insult that when I was trying to find the best way of describing Trump to kind of say something funny in this introduction, what I found instead was one blog rounding up the 460 best ways to insult him. Now, we're going to hear from Tiff Stevenson and Kieran Hodgson, two comedians who bring politics into their work in quite different ways. Tiff deals more with the social side of politics in her comedy, particular focus on women's rights and how political decision-making affects women's autonomy over their body. Kieran takes a very different approach in his new show, 75, that's uh, the year 1975 that it's named after. In this new stand-up show, he is looking in granular, almost obsessive detail at a political event from the past that many would consider incredibly boring, which is how Britain joined the EU in the first place. Now, I was off sick when this recording was done, the sort of sick where I texted my producer Chica as a photo of my face and she wrote back, oh God, please do not come near me, despite this being a podcast. So rising to the challenge with only a couple of hours notice, uh, Chica stepped into my shoes and did the interview herself. So in theory, there's nothing funny about politics. So the Oxford definition of politics, yes, I looked it up. The activities associated with the governance of a country or area, especially the debate between parties having power, don't all laugh at once, uh, doesn't imply that politics is something that we all are going to be laughing along with. But despite that, a hugely popular genre of comedy has grown up laughing at politics. So no matter how far we go back through history, politics have always been accompanied by satire. 
Now, I've got two professional comedians here along with me to talk about why do we make politics funny. So I've got stand-up comedian, actor and writer that has appeared on almost every TV and radio programme that mocks current affairs. Hi, thanks. Almost every. Yes, um, <laughs> I am all of those things, a slashy. There we go. And alongside her is Kieran Hodgson, character comedian, mid-UK tour and actor. Um, yes, all of the above. Um, yes, I, I've appeared on zero programmes mocking current affairs. And I'm quite happy about it because I'm rather timid. But after this um, podcast, uh, yes, well, inundated. I, I'm, I'm not fussy. So, Kieran, you've made the UK's 1975 referendum on EU membership funny. And Tiff, you've called Jacob Rees-Mogg a womb botherer. Um, <laughs> so between you, you've made the common market and the debate behind the legality of abortion funny. We've tried. <laughs> yeah. How do you make subjects like this funny? And almost more importantly, why do you need to make it funny? Because they're important. And I think sometimes viewing them in another light makes them accessible to people who wouldn't normally engage with those topics. People might not have known about the 1975 referendum so I, I certainly didn't until <laughs> so you did a show on it so mm. I, I feel like it's a way of getting people to engage with the topics that make it feel a little bit less dry I think sometimes politics in the UK can feel sterile and certainly as a working class person not for you not for you these decisions mm. get made without you so with stuff like reproductive rights it's personal to me and if it's personal, the political is personal and the personal is political. But so I feel like there's a way of young women hearing about this and hearing about rights and something like, um, you know, that's still going on in Northern Ireland at the moment. And progress is happening. In fact, progress is ruining my comedy day by day. But I'm happy for <laughs> okay, it. Yes. You sort of find that when you win the battles, <laughs> yeah. the, the outrage can't be sustained. <laughs> no, but you can point it in another direction. So, exactly. for, for example, yeah. with Repeal the Eighth, I can now look exclusively to Northern Ireland. That needs to be spoken about every day until the change happens. I, I like stories, so my, my shows tend to be like very long stories. And I guess politics is, in, in a way, it's, it's the national story because there's, there's so many millions of us. Politics supposedly is the, is the meeting point for all of the, the views and, and what's important to everyone coming together in that central space of the political debate and to kind of keep track of how that is moving helps, I guess, define your, your sense of how the country has moved and how the society has moved. Even though it, it often can be over overcomplicated and seemingly quite dry, I think the fact that we all have this thing, the common area that we can refer to and laugh at, is really important. That, I think, is why comedians and writers are drawn to politics, is it because it is... Um, it's who we are at any given point. And Kieran, how did you decide that you wanted to express your political comedy through storytelling? I'm the sort of person who finds it quite difficult to express themselves with great immediacy, shall we say. So I like to kind of sit quietly and, and think about something and, and sort of read a lot about it. So I knew that if I was going to do a show about politics, it would be about something that was that I'd had time to process. And so political history appealed a, a bit more because I felt, OK, I can kind of get more of a handle on that, whereas contemporary politics is, is sort of changing so rapidly. You have to stop a political history story from being just 
your own hobby that you're indulging on stage or being a lecture. So I sort of like if I'm interested in 70s politics, why do anyone? Why would anyone want to hear that now? Oh, the Europe question, which was a very pressing one then, and uh, is ceaseless today. And it just seemed like there were many parallels between that story of us going in and the story of us coming out, and common themes that were explored then that, that helped cast light on where we're at today. I mean, and Tiff, and you're the opposite. You're very reactive in your comedy, aren't you? Yeah, I am. I do love stories as well. And I love that there are so many different ways to tell a political story Mm. or tap into the zeitgeist. And, you know, there's been TV shows that have done that and plays as well, you know, like The Thick of It or where you you sort of drill down into the characters, I guess, that, that come out of this. But the nature of doing any of these topical TV shows or doing stuff on Twitter is that you have to catch that moment. Yes. There's a moment that happens. Like today, it was just, you know, it's like Esther McVeigh, <laughs> you know, talking about the Euro and being called out for tweeting a link to an article that's completely incorrect. And then me going on her bio and going, <laughs> it says like, glass half full, dog lover. Da, da, da. I was like, this is one rock climbing away from a match.com profile, <laughs> right? So, uh, but, but you know, this that is in the day, in the moment, that's funny today yeah. because Esther McVeigh has been talked about I like that that the the immediacy of stand-up one of the things about comedy is that it's great that even within what you may count as a subgenre, i.e. political comedy there are 10 different ways of doing it uh, from you know a, a tv series to um to sort of stand up to sort of whatever it is I do I think recently someone described me as a satirist which I I don't know that I like the term because I feel like it's, again, I feel it's very separate. I mean, most, I just, I feel like it's, as a word, it's weird. So I tend to think of like private eye and I tend to think of sort of maybe the establishment and kind of this old fashioned bloated idea of what, maybe of what satire is. And I don't necessarily think I'm that, but I had this account, which was called Bridget Trump's Diary, which was, I think it was about two years ago, actually, I sort of noticed the correlation between Bridget Jones and Donald Trump and (laughs) how Donald tweets like a 30-something singleton. Yeah, straight off the top of his head. Yeah, like, (laughs) uh, like genuinely. So it became about, like, what Vlad thinks and what... And Farage became mm. like the two, the sort of the Daniel and the uh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Mark, Mark Darcy. Darcy and, yeah, yeah, yeah. So like they became these two characters and it was like, uh, harumph, you know, just like hate myself today, <laughs> ate like three Taco Bells. Da, da, da. You know, like it's kind of really easy to just to put them in. So I did that. And, and that I think is where the satirical thing comes from. But what I will say was it's actually really for me, quite a blessed relief to kind of step away from my political opinions sometimes and write in the voice of a character. Mm. So I can totally see where the appeal lies from kind of either a storytelling perspective or from a character narrative, because one of the problems with doing like political comedy is you're you're so chained to your beliefs and who you Mm. are that sometimes separating yourself from that can be hard. Kieran, what do you think about satire? I mean, is it, is it offensive or is it simply funny gossip? As in politics itself, in political comedy, there's a distinction to be made between sort of Westminster gossip and comedy and jokes about the particular members of the cabinet or shadow cabinet of the day. And then the politics that is actually about who the rest of us are and what the rest of us care about. 
and the issues, I suppose, be it reproductive rights or or the environment or guns or what have you, that can be talked about at length without needing to, to make a joke about XYZ person in Westminster. Maybe you could associate that term satire more with the, the former. Yes, yeah, like so, uh, socio-political. Yeah. When you're talking about guns and reproductive rights and these are things that... Um, but when you start getting into the minutiae of, uh, uh, for example, Article 50, mm. <laughs> you know, or bits of legislation. And I sometimes have the fear of that. I kind of back off that. I was asked to do question time and it was just all around the referendum and I was just I just didn't want to go on and make a fool of myself I was like I don't want to be boxed into a corner by someone talking about you know trade le legislation and I don't understand what's going on mm. and I'm like if I can be that person that represents in a funny way what the everyday voice is or mm. voice what people's concerns are I'm happy to do that and I can be passionate about stuff like education I can be passionate about feminism and reproductive rights but I can't about you know but you're not trying to be I'm not I'm not trying to be but but I but I worry sometimes that <laughs> being put in that position says like all of a sudden you're you're expected to be this ex expert on something you said well I'm not a politician mm. so I don't know yeah and I guess what I found a fun challenge with this show was trying to to square that circle and and take those Westminster personalities or you know the sort of dry men in in big glasses from the 70s and show that actually there was a link between them and the heart of the matter as it were but you just it's hard to see because it's deluged with all those documentaries of people sitting in leathery chairs saying <laughs> and that's then I walked into uh, number 11 and I said to Charlotte this can't keep going on and uh, you know it's a sort of seems so dry but actually what was it that Roy Jenkins was talking about? And it was, it, you know, it, it, it is things that are, that break out of that somewhat dry image into the issue. And I mean, your current show requires a whole new level of research as opposed to that that would go into a stand-up routine. A lot of people would struggle to make that funny. So I, I, I did like tons of reading about this topic in this period. And then I did early drafts of the show which were described by friends of mine as just information overload and like a lecture. And so I had to work hard to put in a very strong personal element to it. And so the show begins and ends talking about my relationship with my mum and how the two of us voted in the 2016 referendum and how that altered our relationship. And then this journey into the books is a journey to try and make sense of it all. But I don't feel that I could do another show, say, about, I don't know, the English Civil War and say I had a big disagreement with my dad about Sir Thomas Fairfax. You know, like, <laughs> it's that kind of thing where I, thought, I think I've used up my one shot at, at justifying that kind of show. And I'm, also, I think when you're doing something from the books, you're up against that challenge of how do I make it funny? How do I make... Wilson's renegotiation in Dublin in 1975, a funny set piece. But you manage it. it. Isn't, yeah, but, but it takes a lot of effort. Yeah. And I'm quite like to do another show. A bit like you were saying, it's like, can I just step away from that and just do it, something really stupid? So I think my next show might just be for something very daft. and Silliness. And silliness and, and not, not politics, really. Because it, yeah, I'm not sure I could be a politician and have to live, live with it daily for decades. I think as a comedian, you have the privilege of wandering off and talking about um, your bins, although of course bins is very political. <laughs> <laughs> but you cover a very serious topic and you have covered it for a very long time, the inequality between sexes mm -hmm. um, and a long time obviously before the Me Too movement. 
what motivated you to do this? Was it anger? Was it the need to, to sort of spread the word about this? Like, what, what motivates you in, in political comedy? Do you, the passion behind it, what makes it? Um, I think just probably my lived experience sometimes. But also, I guess, a lot of my comedy begins from a place of me even if it's a simple observation noticing a thing but it's normally a thing that sort of pissed me off or some piece of logic that I want to explode and kind of highlight how ridiculous that is so there was um there was a woman in Australia when I was doing tour shows over there for example a few years ago and this informed a big part of one of my shows a couple of years back and this was a political and a social issue, which was about equal marriage in Australia. So I'd done a show and after the show, she said to me, marriage is between a man and a woman. That's just the way it's always been. <laughs> and I sort of said, well, what I could have said to her was, you know, up until 1911, it was only men who voted. It's just the way it's always been. Mm. Because the interesting fact there is that Australia had women's suffrage seven years before the UK. And then the joke was, I, I say, how could they have been so far ahead then and so far behind now? time difference it turns out it's time difference uh, but it, it, it's you know it's just a silly way of kind of exploding that then I kind of go you know it's just the way it's always been is a really stupid piece of logic mm. to apply when change is being made so it starts from a piece of some someone's pissed me off and this thing happened with this woman in Australia mm. she pissed me off and then a routine grew out of that and the routine was about that stupid piece of logic of it's the way it's always been so always generally coming from something I've seen or something I've, that's pissed me off or I feel passionate about and and being a woman is is who I am you know <laughs> I that obviously feeds into my experience and then sometimes you say something and that receives kickback and that makes me want to talk about it more. What sort of kickback? Um, the reproductive rights stuff. I wrote a piece for The Guardian about an abortion I had when I was 17. That's the one time my mum was like, I would maybe stop talking about that now. My parents never really kind of go, you shouldn't do this. The two things that really upset people are if I do jokes about the royal family and <laughs> abortion. <laughs> Surprisingly, it's the royal family that is... <laughs> Uh, that seems to really upset people. So, um, but I wrote this piece and then online I got, actually had like an overwhelming wave of support. Because when I sort of tell my story, I talk about the fact that the, f the father of that potential, you know, child went to prison and sort of how my life could have panned out and what would have happened. So what I had was quite a lot of support and especially from men kind of going, my daughter was just about to go to university, was going to university and she, you know, I helped her through this and thanks for sharing. Lots of male comics actually going, if you want to talk about this on stage as a man, read this, mm. then think about, you know, which was really nice. But it was a, it was a fairly emotive piece and it was talking about the fact that it, it isn't easy and there are things that stick with you. And I hate the idea that not being a parent, people see as like, oh, well, that's just the thing you did on a whim that it doesn't require hard thought. So that went out and then some of the pro-life, let's call them anti-choices, got wind of it. And that I got sort of some threatening stuff on Twitter and some vile abuse, especially from the right in, in the States, the sort of alt-right. Like there'll be times where I get into it with some people, my, my partner will be sat in the living room and he'll see me upset and he'll go, just, just please, because it's like they're in the room with us, just switch it off, you know, and I have to then go, he'll be like, it's Friday night or a Saturday night and we're at home and these people 
are in the room with us, but mm. it takes a bit of conscious work to try and not engage those negative voices or if I do respond, respond to the positive people. And Kieran, is there a do you think there's a line in political comedy? And if so, who draws the line? The one I had in mind particularly was the baby Donald Trump. Do you yes. remember that they uh, they had over the House of, of Parliament yeah, and Sadiq blimp. Khan uh, allowed it for two hours, which I thought was so interesting. How could you... That's kind of deciding the limit of satire, you know. Is that almost censorship, you know? I think the, the important coda to that was that he was also quite happy for them to fly the uh, blimp version of him a few months later. You know, how do you feel about Sadiq Khan? I think he played it very well in that... When he allowed the Trump blimp, a lot of people said, how scandalous that you're insulting the American president in this way. How dare you? You wouldn't let someone fly a blimp of you, would you? You wouldn't like that. And then they did, and he just shrugged it off. He just said, yeah, fine. Yellow's not my colour. And, <laughs> and, and that was that. And, and so he just sort of deflated it by ignoring it in a very, I thought, an admirably school playground kind of way. Yeah, yeah, I thought that response was great. But I think what you've done there is, is crystallise or distill exactly why politics is funny because that is almost an idea for a sketch that meeting where they decide how long the blimp is going to fly yes. is a really funny sketch it's straight out of the thick of it isn't it yeah yeah you know. how much piss take is enough piss take yeah because we and how high are we going to fly it and at what level <laughs> you know like and it just how yeah big, it would be how big can the circumference of the of his belly be yes. as, a, as a baby uh, <laughs> without it <laughs> We talk endlessly of golden ages, of television, of music, of various things. Let us add one more to that list and ask, is this a golden age for political humour or is it the exact opposite? Have our brains been so numbed by political events that are beyond parody that there's nothing particularly clever or new to be joked about? Joining me to discuss these broader questions is Tom Jameson. He's one of the men behind the jokes that you see in the magazine Private Eye, all those politicians with their funny speech bubbles added, and the jokes that you hear on programmes including the news quiz and often dead ringers. Tom, thank you for joining us. Um, Thank you, glad to be here. Now, the careful listener may have picked up the hint of an Australian accent there. They may have, long, yes. Long buried by 30 years in the UK. My gosh, yes, almost 30 years, yes. <laughs> so you spent that time uh, observing British politics. You started writing for Private Eye, kind of in, I guess, what would still be the heyday of New Labour, kind of perhaps a fairly uncontentious time 99. I'm old enough to remember when people were telling us that there would never be satire again because the country was so happy with New Labour. I remember well when we were saying, well, what are you going to make fun of anymore now that the the major era was ending? Oh, things will happen. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, perhaps we could start off. I'd love for you to kind of give me a snapshot of what your job was like then in terms of making jokes about politics versus what it's like now. Well, I mean, then it was it, it was more it was of a normal thing because the world was a more of a normal place, and now the world has has gone insane, and is, politics is uh, quite mad. I think there was a, there was an understanding of what politics was like. There was parameters, Brexit and Trump have blown them all away, perhaps forever. And you would say that it is those two events. I would say it's those. Yeah, I would say it's those two events. Yes, yeah. I've never known a. a 
political cycle like it in terms of the speed of news or just the the extent of I mean Trump because he has no no belief in the truth and that I think that always underpinned politics a little bit as bad as it got I mean when I was preparing for this episode I was kind of thinking about things that have happened recently in Britain and you know one thing that just came to mind was out here we're sat on the banks of the Thames now and out here on the Thames a couple of years ago when there was the referendum was it Bob Geldof and Nigel Farage were both in boats they both had like flotillas one for leave and one for remain and they were just shouting insults at each other in the river and you just think just these utterly ridiculous things that have manifested in British politics, in American politics. Does it feel like too much for you? Is is this a good thing or is it a bad thing for the well, job that I mean, you do? I mean, I think it's, 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 a, it's a bad thing for the world. It's a bad thing for our country. It's not particularly a bad thing for my for what I do because, I, I mean, it, it engages people to what we do. I mean, privatised sales have never been higher in some ways, though, it forces you to work a little bit harder, if anything. I mean, we shouldn't leave making a laughing stock to politicians because they're suddenly become very good at it. You know, yeah. I think you have to keep at them. I think if we just surrender to the, to the craziness and to the lies and stuff, I think it would be a very bad thing. I think we need comedy, yeah. And presumably also the bar is set a lot higher because everyone already thinks that a lot of things that are happening are ridiculous and perhaps have their own takes on the kind of intrinsic comedy of what is happening, dark comedy of what is happening in the world. So for you to kind of, as a professional, yes. make a joke out of that. The, yes, it is the a very, a very a bit blackly comic place. But as a professional, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think the world is, is still there to be, yes, made fun of. And I think comedy is an important release for people yeah and that in itself is something it may not change the world but it gives that person a release and a in a dark world that's a good thing if i was to ask you what the function of kind of political comedy is you don't have any kind of grand manifesto on it it's just this is kind of a subject of shared interest well i think it's very british i mean i think british satire is just a thing and i think it has something to do with just the british character how intrinsically repressed it is, and I mean, I was thinking on the way here with the, with the, because people often blame comedy for for Boris Johnson and uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, but I think there's more to do with Sir Britain's love of eccentrics as as an outsider. Mm. I mean, I've seen so many eccentrics come and go, you know, in terms of entertainment, you know, two fat ladies, uh, the um, the nun who was into art. People love eccentrics here. Uh, and uh, and and they, Wendy, they fit yeah. Sister Wendy. Sorry, yes, <laughs> yes. There is some responsibility in comedy that they have built themselves up. But equally, I think there's just a love of eccentrics. You were saying before that you aren't sure that there's any kind of great call to action that comes from telling political jokes. I mean, can you think of a time that a joke has changed someone's mind about politics? I mean, I mean, there are, there are countries where political comedy is dangerous, and there are countries where I think the people doing it are a lot braver than me. I'm not not brave. I mean, you know, Britain has that as a tradition of political comedy. But um, I don't know. I mean, the private eye cover is a, a great one. Our 50th cover, which was contrasting, which was 2011, which was contrasting 1951, Macmillan, Old screwing up the country, you know, with all his chums. And 2011, David Cameron, old Tony, and screwing up the country with all these charms with the strapline, how satire works. I don't, I'm not self-important enough to think we, we change the world. And, but there are places where people are brave enough to change the world through satire. In countries where satire is considered more uh, politically dangerous, is what you're saying then, that the 
the main kind of risk comes from actually telling the jokes rather than necessarily the content of them. Oh, you, you're not wrong. I mean, absolutely put yourself at risk. Cartoonists, broadcasters, there's a broadcaster in, was it, was it Iran or Iraq? I mean, people who really put their lives on the line to do what they do. And that is, you know, that is amazing bravery, yeah. You're talking about uh, satire as being a quite traditionally British thing, kind of political satire. And I think Private Eye is kind of one tradition of that, isn't it? And some of the other things you do, which is these quite wry, sharp jabs at kind of the hypocrisy or the idiocy of normally punching up. So, you know, targets who deserve to be taken down. In recent years, and particularly in America, there's been this very new strand of kind of political comedy and commentary, which, you know, stems from people like John Stewart and Colbert and John Oliver, which is these, I mean, I think you'd still call it political satire, but rather than kind of these uh, sharp jabs, it's these long, very impassioned, often kind of, you know, making a moral and political point monologues. Have you kind of noticed that as a, a shift or like a a forking of the road in what satire tries to do? Well, particularly, I think it's just, it, it is just, it, it's, that is, an, is, an, is an, a very, I think, American tradition and those shows, those shows are, 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 are I mean, a way of expressing, expressing their satire that America knows because they have their late night and they mm. have their monologues where, where often if there is a big, really big news story, people will do a whole, you know, two-minute, three-minute monologue and, and, and be serious as well as funny. I mean, I think it's just so, something that is more more of an um, American um, a tradition. I mean, we get a little bit of that now on The Last Leg on that, which is absolutely brilliant. I mean, Adam Hills does it. I mean, it just isn't so much of a British tradition. I mean, certainly people have tried those shows here and they tend to fail for some reason. And, of course, everyone is seeing a lot more now because of, because of um, social media and because of the internet. People are seeing other people's styles and I think they're actually bleeding into yeah. each other a bit more. I think John Stewart has influenced a whole generation of people and I think we're seeing much more of a of that type of impassioned comedy coming to play here. And I suppose something makes me think that 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 sort of comedy makes a lot of sense for these huge, you know, terrible path altering things that are currently happening in the world because Maybe you know when you're when you've got New Labour in '99, it's kind of it makes sense to kind of poke holes at um, you know the small ways in which politicians are kind of not doing their job properly. But when it just feels like the whole system is <laughs> tumbling into rack and ruin, well, we're very very lucky to have Prime Day. We're very savage, you know. So we're we're very savage on the inside pages, and 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 I think a a, a private eye cover that crystallises a story for people is a marvellous thing. I mean, I think our last cover we did, which was a multi-bubble of four of the last week, mm-hmm. was absolutely superb capturing of the nation's mood and sort of, the, you know, you get a lot of reaction online to it and that, and I think that is a very good thing as well. A lot of people say that political comedy is a project of the left. Would you agree with that? No. No. I mean, I think it's a project of people who look at things in a certain way. I would have just as happy writing, writing Labour or Conservative or Lib Dem or Green or UKIP jokes. It's attacking hypocrisy, and there's hypocrisy on all sides. I understand there's a natural leaning towards the left in terms of 
of social stuff in terms of you know the NHS and 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 the safety net, social security safety net, and all that. Yeah. But I'm more than happy. I mean, uh, more than happy to make jokes about anybody. <laughs> that he's being the hypocrisy is on all sides. You know, and I, I think anyone who thought that there's no hypocrisy on the left would be very, uh, very strange. I think at this point everyone accepts that there's kind of an inherent level of farce in Brexit. Yes. Are there certain political topics where that kind of natural comedy is entirely lacking and you really struggle to make jokes about because they feel so serious and unfunny? Yes, yes, definitely. There's there's stuff that that isn't funny, but there's also, I think it's very important on any subject that you find an angle and that you're punching up and not punching down. I mean, there are times when you need to talk about the terror attack. In the last issue of Private Eye, we talked about the terror attack in New Zealand through Trump and through how he would react to it in his you know, hypocritical way. As long as you're punching up, I think it, 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 topics that are difficult are worth attacking because to- topics are difficult, are easy. Well, then they're easy to do jokes about. And I think if you're doing political comedy, you should you should be able to tackle difficult subjects. It's interesting, but what you're saying is that someone like Trump, who's uh, intrinsically a funny character, can be a sort of gateway to those. But that's why I think you have to push with someone for instance, like, like Trump or Farage, because they're intrinsically funny, yeah. even uh, Reese Mogg, and you have to do have to strip that away a little bit to the to the extreme nastiness that lies beneath and the nastiness of their of the the people that they associate with. So you know, and the uh, yeah, in a way, they're far harder targets, aren't they? In the way that they're easy to laugh at, and and of course, and that is the other thing: the public like laughing at them. They say, "Oh, why?" In terms of my other hat, which is the sketch show we write, Dead Ringers, which is a very long-running sketch show on the BBC, is that, oh, why do you do this person? Well, people actually want to hear that person. People also find them easy to laugh at. So, yeah, you do have to push it with that, yes. Last question. I mean, perhaps we can answer this in the British context because you've been observing us at almost one of us. I know, I'm one of the immigrants. I'm part of the problem, <laughs> see. I'm, so, I'm definitely part of the problem in this whole Brexit so, debate. I mean, if only say. I would leave, things could get sorted out. <laughs> But um, with yeah, with your outsiders hat on, do you think that politics would be different if there was no comedy? Mm, I think it would be awful, and 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 we looked at the countries around the world where there is no where political comedy isn't allowed. I don't think it changes the world, but I think it's an important thing. It's an important release, and it's important to look at these people in a different way and look at them in a satirical way. Mm. Yes, I do. Yes, it would be terrible. So, Tom, since we've been sat here uh, with your phones off, you've probably missed three uh, political so. developments. And at least two Twitter storms. <laughs> Somebody's career will have been ended while we're, while we're chatting, for sure. Hopefully, we neither of us. Turn on my phone and check. Um, so, yeah, I will let you get back to it. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great fun. Thanks for listening to the comedy episode of Think Aloud. Kieran will be at the Southbank Centre on May 28th with that new show. Tiff is gigging around London at the moment and elsewhere. You can check on her website, which is tiffstevenson.co.uk, for details of future tours. 